for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Today we are talking to Nathan Pevy, a PhD student from Newcastle University, UK, who is looking into the differences between different types of losses of consciousness, including epilepsy, dissociative seizures, which are not epileptic, and syncope, otherwise known as fainting. Each of these things can look pretty similar and, well, we aren't keen on any misdiagnosis or being referred to the incorrect clinician. So distinguishing between these different losses is really important. So the purpose of Nathan's study is to figure out if it's possible to use a digital doctor to diagnose why the person is losing consciousness. In his spare time, Nathan likes to go on country walks with his dog, which is massive, by the way, massive dog. Um, go on family days out, travel and learn about other cultures um, and eat good food. Stay tuned to learn more about Nathan's research and indeed potential involvement. Um, and make sure you subscribe, uh, press that bell to receive notifications of these weekly interviews. So Nathan, please tell us about yourself and what you do. I'm a third year PhD student in the Department of Neuroscience at the University of Sheffield. I started in academia studying psychology and since then I did a master's in cognitive and computational neuroscience, which is a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I went on from that to do go on to my PhD um, and my PhD involves trying to predict the cause of epilepsy, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures or syncope. Which is fainting. Uh, fainting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I guess we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, but yeah, I'm super interested in um, health technology. Um, so that's kind of why I'm going into this route. It seems like a bit of a clumping of different disorders diseases together like those three can you tell us why you're doing that why are you clumping those together um it centers around the experience of losing consciousness so it's often referred to as a transient loss of consciousness because people make a complete recovery afterwards um, and people who have uh, some people who have epilepsy will have epileptic seizures that cause them to lose consciousness and the same for people who have non-epileptic seizures and obviously when people faint they lose consciousness so when people initially present with a loss of consciousness, um, the, the doctor needs to make a decision as to which one of the three health conditions that it is. And we're hoping to um, create a tool that can help doctors make them predictions um, as to what caused the loss of consciousness. And so how does that differ from, say, having video telemetry or a long-term EEG? Because I know often that that's what people, there can be up to like 30% of people who are diagnosed with epilepsy actually don't have epilepsy and they might have some other sort of disorder. So obviously this is making me mm. think of that, but for, for that we'll need to have a long-term EEG. Um, so how does this differ apart from obviously not having those gorgeous um, electrodes on one's head? <laughs> and so the tool that we're designing we're hoping will be used before people get to the level of a neurologist or a cardiologist where they would typically have video, uh, video EEG 
the idea is a lot of people who initially get the wrong diagnosis, that happens in primary care settings. Um, so with GPs and in emergency care services. Uh, so the, 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 the statistic that you quoted in terms of 30%, um, often, often that's recorded in the transition between primary care to where they get the diagnosis in a tertiary level setting. Um, so we're hoping to create a tool that can be used in primary care um, in order to guide the referral pathways. Um, so we're not hoping to make the diagnosis more just be something that um, medical professionals can use to guide where they refer people to uh, and guide that kind of decision process. Cool. And for people who aren't familiar with the term, what is a, uh, a like a pathway that you're talking about? Because I think most people, especially those who aren't clinicians, they, they think about, oh, it's going for a little stroll up the road, up a pathway. <laughs> 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 what does one mean by pathway? By pathway, I mean really where people are referred to um, once they're referred to hospital. Um, so I work in the Royal Halmshire Hospital and I know that people will be referred from emergency services and GPs to um, either the seizure department or the cardiology department. And the test that they get will be uh, based upon the department that they're referred to. And if people are referred to the wrong department, they'll initially get the wrong test, which can take quite a long time. And then they finally realise that they've been referred to the wrong department and then they get referred to the other department and then they have to have all the tests again. So this just delays how long it takes people to get the right diagnosis. Whereas if we can get people to the right teams the first time round, obviously that, that would help with them delays. Um, it would make it a lot less frustrating for many people and families. Um, I think delays in um, diagnosis and therefore treatment can be one of the most frustrating things for many people. So no, this is really important. So just tell us a bit more about your study and, you know, how far through the process are you? What type of people are you looking to be involved? How does it all work? So in terms of the project, um, we're researching whether we can predict the diagnosis using an, like an online web application. Um, so we have a application that people can access through the Internet and it asks people questions about their experience of either having a seizure or fainting. Uh, and we collect two types of data. Um, we, there's a closed questionnaire that has yes or no questions about the symptoms that people have experienced. And then there's a second part that we refer to as like a digital doctor, but it's a bit more basic than that. Basically, there's an avatar that asks a question about the most recent attack. And, and then the microphone in your device will allow you to record your response to that question. So the idea is that we can collect more detailed spoken descriptions of what happened that can complement the, the yes or no questions. Um, and we're hoping to use the data that we collect to predict the diagnosis using machine learning. Um, and we're recruiting people who have a diagnosis of either epilepsy, non-epileptic seizures or syncope. Um, and people who are over adults or over the age of 16 and people who can interact, who can answer the questions independently. Okay. Um, and how, so I'm just thinking, uh, imagine if I was doing this myself and I've had just um, had a seizure, mm -hmm. I might not feel terribly top notch to um, be actually filling in any forms or anything like that. It might take me a good while to feel um, well enough or, um, yeah, and then after that, after some time has passed, I might not remember everything that's happened. So how how do we overcome this, the people that are doing involved in the study? In terms of when you complete the application, that's up to the person. 
So if you signed up for the study, I would give you the login details to the application and then you can complete it at a time that's the most convenient to you. Um, what you mentioned about people not being able to remember what happened, um, obviously that is a really big challenge um, because people have lost consciousness. So there are lots of challenges with memory associated with producing that description. Um, and we're, like, we're accepting that everyone can recall different amounts. So people can only answer the questions based upon what they can recall and what they can say. And that's that's perfectly fine. Um, and I guess what at the moment we're only collecting one description from people because we're testing the feasibility of the of the method um, but i hope in the future uh, the application could be used to collect multiple recordings so that if people have uh, for example one seizure where they really struggle to recall what happened they might have future seizures where they have more memory and you can just collect more data over time that would hopefully and help all the data that. that you collect is it all um through written like or can some of it be oral as well so the questionnaire you click on either yes or no uh, and in terms of the the descriptions, it's all oral. Uh, we're not oh. collecting written descriptions. And so what about people who are nonverbal? Because lots of people with epilepsy are nonverbal. So that is, I guess that's a limitation of the current method that we're using. Oh, okay. Um, because we're just collecting spoken descriptions. I think hopefully in the future, there's um, there might be ways we could change the application to, to be more uh, accommodating to different people. Um, but also the, the questionnaire itself has previously been tested and it across the three health conditions, it was able to identify the diagnosis with an accuracy of 86%. Oh, how come? It was just really good. They had a, they recruited 300 people, 100 of each diagnosis, um, and they used a machine learning algorithm uh, to train on the data and test on the data. And that's just how well it performed. It was able to detect 100% of cases of fainting uh, and in terms of the reduction that the remaining 14 percent they was all trying to differentiate between people with epilepsy and non-epileptic seizures so it struggled to differentiate between a lot of cases okay. of them too um, and so we're hoping that the spoken descriptions will complement the questionnaire and help improve that accuracy um, but in terms of your point about people who are non-verbal the questionnaire by itself does work really well um, so there is obviously the option to complete the questionnaire and not the spoken descriptions, and that would still be would be really really helpful. And can the information which people um, put into um, the study can that also be put onto their health record if they want it to be? Or like, can they? Is there a way for them to share this with their neurologist? So not at the moment because what we're researching is separate to any treatment that people are having. It is um, completely yeah. separate to the care that people receive. The idea, though, I think is a really great idea. And I collect when people take part in the study, they, they have an option to provide feedback on the application so we can hopefully shape it in the future to meet what people want. And a lot of people have said that they'd, they'd like it to be integrated into the care record so that they don't have to always repeat themselves when they're seeing different medical professionals and things. So I think the idea is a really great idea and it would be something that we would look at in the future if we was to take this forward. Perfect. And what about for people who say English isn't your first language, um, say that you, you know, you know, your your first language is Hindi, for instance. Is there somebody, are they able to speak into, like take part in their native language and then have somebody um, translate it on your side? Not at the moment, unfortunately. Um, for this current project, we're just 
collecting the spoken descriptions in English. Um, but it's important to point out that we're so early in this research. Yeah. Um, I'm getting a bit like carried in... away, aren't I? I'm like, this person, <laughs> this person, yeah, but... <laughs> it is good to talk about the concept as a whole, though, because obviously there's there's a lot more that could happen in the future. Yeah. Um, but, like, I'm in the... I, I work in the Department of Computer Science as well, and there's a lot of people who do research uh, in terms of, like automatic translation and things like that and training machine learning models on one language and then using them on another so it's definitely something that could be used in the future okay. um, but at the moment we just have to test the principle right uh, and then we'd hopefully be able to expand it because i think it's important um if, if people are speaking in a second language they're perhaps going to have more difficulty conveying their experience especially when they have uh, like auras uh, and unusual like experiences associated with their epilepsy uh, epileptic seizure then it, it's hard enough to kind of describe them as it is but especially if you're trying to do it in a second language so I think it's important that people can speak in their native language yeah totally because it, in some languages they don't even have words for seizure or epilepsy it's like so it can be really hard to describe what you're going through um, but also I'm just thinking about people um, from certain cultures and, and stuff like it can there can be higher rates of um, is rates the word but discrimination and stuff like that and so what I'm thinking of is if this project takes off then this could be really good for people from those sort of um who are in the situation where they can't talk about their epilepsy they feel that they can't really ask other people what's happened so much because or even people that are just like embarrassed to talk about their epilepsy and don't feel like they have anywhere else to go in fact that that can be like so many people this could be really cool for that right yeah, and it could definitely help as well in places where the understanding is of epilepsy or non-epileptic seizures or fainting isn't perhaps as good. Or fainting, of course, yeah, uh, isn't isn't perhaps as as good. Um, obviously, that tool could be quite helpful in them settings. And I'm also I'm just thinking about you know people that are misdiagnosed, for instance, with epilepsy or misdiagnosed with. So, um, I know somebody who it took 19 years for him to be diagnosed and we are going back a fair while like in history but but even so and uh yeah I haven't spoken to him in detail about it but I imagine some of the thoughts were oh he's just fainting because he was having solely focal seizures and so oh you know he's just like staring into space or you know oh he's a bit off his face or whatever whereas I don't know maybe something like this for people in that sort of situation today could be really useful it's really sad to hear about how long it takes some people to receive a diagnosis. And unfortunately, when I speak to people about the project, I hear a lot of cases of people taking many, many years to receive it. So I, I'm really hopeful that it could be really helpful in the future um, and hopefully try and reduce how long it takes people yeah. to get that final diagnosis. Yeah, and then once you've got the diagnosis, then, yeah, then things can just move more swiftly, I think. And quite frankly, you know, maybe I'm going a bit like, far ahead here but literally lives can be saved i'm thinking about sudep and stuff like that you know um it can be really dangerous can't it people not having the right diagnosis because the risks can be missed um and it's not exactly it's not and good. um like i have a friend whose um little one was having infantile spasms so when he was a baby um and so this is a rare type of epilepsy and he uh the clinicians, because they were not expert in epilepsies, they thought that, oh, gastrointestinal issues, that's why he's wiggling around a bit and stuff like that. Like, oh my goodness, and this happens a lot. I suppose though, in this, uh, in this project, in this study, this is for adults 
only at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, that that is all that we're testing at the moment. Yeah. So like eighteen and over. Sixteen and over. Okay, cool. I'm not sure I'd be classified as an adult when I was sixteen and over, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it all depends upon the person, doesn't it? But yeah. <laughs> um, but is that sort of like the only restriction, sixteen and over, um, or must be able to make the concerted decision themselves to take part? So of a certain level of intellect as well, or not? So people have to be able to consent to the project yeah. independently. That that's really important. Okay. And um, people need to be able to like complete the application uh, independently. So I, when I say that, I mean like answer the questions. Um, it's important that people are answering the questions based upon their own experience. Sorry, but then you say that, but then also carers can fill a bit in for them. So I haven't mentioned that, which is an ah, important thing okay. for me to mention. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. We have a separate um, procedure for people who've witnessed a seizure or a faint. Um, so the patient would still complete the procedure independently and answer all of their questions on their own experience. But a witness can also log in and answer the questions based on what they've seen. Uh, and so they have some of the closed questions and some of the spoken descriptions questions as well. And in going back to what I mentioned before about how well the questionnaire works, it, the best performance happened when there was witness responses to the questions too um that that helps a lot so is it possible for um only witnesses to um to take part in this or must it always include the person who's having the seizures or the always fainting it must always include the person who's had the seizure or fainted um and that's because we need to get the confirmation of the diagnosis um but the the main model is trained upon the the patient responses and then the witness responses are used to complement it and improve the performance complement it gosh mm. rarely does one say use the word compliment when it comes to these illnesses um yeah um <laughs> yeah th this is really cool so um and who else is involved in this and listen this the study overall like have you got um any neurologists epilepsy nurses who, who are complementing this so my supervisor is one of the neurologists at the royal Hampshire hospital in sheffield so professor marcus roiber um so he, he designed the study um, and the study is funded by Epilepsy Research UK. Um, so as my uh, like primary supervisor, he's got like overarching responsibility over the project and he guides me in the research and things like that. So he's the main research person and I'm kind of learning to do research through his expertise and alongside oh, him. So for anybody who's not familiar with the, the name Marcus Rubat, he is like one amazing chap and has done so much um, in the you know the fields of both epilepsy and non-epileptic seizures or psychogenic non-epileptic seizures um so yeah no this is um a great backup name there and thank you <laughs> and thank you so much to epilepsy research uk as well like just focusing on the research because without research we have no hope for the future right we have to have like the work that you are doing for us now to hopefully get better insight into and also another thing uh, well, i just said oh hopefully get better insight but there's um i can't remember what the term is for it but you know how often uh, research will be done into anything but in this instance of course epilepsy and you get a uh, the result is not what one expected that is seen as a negative often um but I think that no matter the result, it's a positive because you have learned something which can um, redirect your future research. So no matter what the outcome of this is, whether um, it is saying that this process is really, really amazing and we'll use this with, you know, almost every person with um, epilepsy, non-epilepsy seizures or, or whether they're fainting, whatever, 
it's still progress which is positive yeah definitely and that's um really important as well when we do machine learning research um because we we can collect data and we can run the analysis and we can make the prediction and the prediction essentially tells us how well it's performing in this current state and then based upon everything we've learned from doing that research project we can like plan the next step in order to make it better um, so whatever the outcome is of this project that kind of just sets the bench line really for how well it's currently working and then we use that to, to improve upon it and we'd be doing things like lit like taking the the feedback interviews and the feedback questionnaire data to get an idea about what people think and what because um, a lot of people have suggestions that actually might be really important for making the prediction of the diagnosis um, and then also we'll kind of explore how well like so in terms of making the predictions some elements of the data will be better at predicting than others and we might be able to figure out okay maybe if we collected questions like this uh, they would actually improve upon it more so it is really it's very much an iterative process of really trying to find the best way of like yeah, predicting really it's almost like there's never enough data but one thing i think people often get a bit nervous about is is sharing their data with organizations i was going to say companies but any organizations um uh, and in addition when things like um, machine learning are, are flung around they're like oh my god this is going to be like terminator and you know the machines are going to take over the world and or this company is going to use our data for things that we don't consent to or share it with other organizations could you just confirm that you're not like terminator-ish and <laughs> what you're going to do with, the, with this data how secure is it so um the data um is like when you do research, you have like a research sponsor who has oversight over the data. And our research sponsor is the Royal Helmshire Hospital. Uh, so the NHS, they have oversight over the data. Uh, we don't share the data with anybody other than for the research project. Uh, we, in terms of when we write research publications, we make sure that everything is anonymized. Um, so no one will ever know where the, who the data has come from. Uh, all the data is stored securely and the data is just kept for the research project and for the auditing process of the research. So for our project, um, it's about 10 years. And then after the after that time, it would be destroyed. Um, so it's not like your data will be kept forever. Um, it is very much just for this research project. I'm going to be like devil's advocate here. So are there any reasons that a person, bar what we've already discussed, would, would not be suitable for this study? Is there any sort of person that you, you know, it's going to be a bit pants and you say no sorry mate you're not suitable we just go off the the inclusion criteria that i mentioned before in terms of being over 16 having a diagnosis and being able to answer the questions independently and um, other than that the, the, we wouldn't exclude anybody there's not an upper age for anybody or anything of course can people can develop epilepsy at any yeah any time okay cool i guess the other important thing to to say is about um, when I say people who can inter interact with it independently, I don't mean people who are like class themselves as technologically savvy. Um, if people are unsure about like using the online web application, they're not sure whether they would have the skills in order to do it. Uh, I would still encourage them to take part if they're interested, because it's really important that people take part who who are really confident with technology and also those who aren't really confident, because the application needs to get a, the perspective of a broad range of people. And if, if you're not super confident, 
um, then I can obviously I'll speak with you on the phone before the project and I can provide support to help people get onto the application to and to, to do things on it. So definitely still take definitely still get in touch if you're interested but you're not sure about whether you would be able to do it because I'm sure we could help you. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. Because I do feel that I wonder sometimes, actually, I'm pretty sure it's the case, maybe I need to do a study on it, but that you get a certain type of people who are involved in research, you know, patient-wise, and, and those sort of people come back again and again. So it's great for you to be reaching out to these individuals. I think for any clinicians listening, please, yeah, recognise that your your patient doesn't have to be you know, IT savvy, as Nathan just said, you know, it's for everybody out there who needs to have their voices heard. And, and even if this doesn't benefit, you know, the individual taking part, this benefits other people affected by um, epilepsy, by uh, non-epileptic seizures and by fainting. Um, and do you know what's really interesting? I can say from personal experience, I've only fainted once that I know of. And the feeling I got just before fainting felt it felt just like a focal seizure just like one and i'm and i thought uh, well I, I think now obviously what i can relate to people who fainted and i am presuming it was a seizure of course that's me presuming um sorry presuming it was fainting rather than a seizure um but there are i can understand why individuals with epilepsy can get um confused and indeed consequently why clinicians can, it can be difficult to you know differentiate when it comes to diagnosis um, mm. and then in addition especially if a person shows no um, irregularities or abnormalities whatever you want to call it on one's EEG which again is really really common so I think this could be valuable for so many people. I, I think it's really interesting as well that you fainted and you recognized that it was similar to having a seizure but you also knew that it was different or, or suspect that it was different and that is why it's so important to get spoken descriptions of what happened because there are very there's lots of subtleties in terms of what people experienced and how they talk about that experience that give a lot of insight into it. Um, yeah, and there's so much also that you can communicate verbally that it's very difficult sometimes to communicate effectively when when you write something. Um, I think anyway, unless you're like proper large jar with with your language. Um, I'm certainly not. Um, uh, it was, yeah, it can just be really difficult to get over how it felt and your experience. So, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, again, I'm so glad that you can help people one to one. That that means a, a great deal to us. So thank you. Um, and by us, by the way, I mean the people with the epilepsy and also carers. So what's the next steps for people? who wants to be involved, who are just thinking about being involved, who just want to learn a bit more about what you're doing. First of all, we actually we have this on the Epilepsy Sparks um, website. Um, but how else? What, else, what else should people do if they want to just learn a little bit more? Firstly, thank you for advertising or study on your website. I think that's it's a really great help. Um, but if people are interested in the study, but they're not quite sure, um, we have a consent to contact form, which there's a link for it on the website, on the Epilepsy Sparks website alongside the information for the study um, and if you complete that form um, I'll get in touch with you and I'll just arrange a time to have a chat about the project and that's just an opportunity for you to ask questions about the project kind of seek clarification anything you're unsure of and there's no obligation to take part if you do want to speak about it it's, it's really just a good time for people to, to hear about it and ask questions and stuff. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan. It's been a true joy. Um, thank you very much on behalf of everybody affected by epilepsy, non-epileptic seizures. Um, was it called syncope? I can't pronounce it. Was it again? Syncope. Fainting. Syncope and fainting, or all of the above, because they often come hand in hand, let's face it. Cool. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you so much for, for having me on your podcast and for speaking with me. Uh, it's been really, really nice. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.